Good morning, everyone. Glad you could join us. Uh, welcome to the online message portion of our time of worship together. Uh, I am Pastor Jeff Strong. This is Pastor Rick Penner. Good morning. And we are moving through a series called The Christmas Revelation. And the idea is pretty simple. It's to look at some of the major, well-known, or maybe not so well-known, but presumed to be well-known passages. And we have a strategy every week. We sort of agree on the passage, separate, study, pray, ponder, make notes, then come together on Sunday without kind of knowing the details of what we're going to share and then say, what did you notice in the passage? And we're kind of always driving to two main discipleship questions, which is how has this impacted your own walk with Christ? How does this passage challenge or inspire you? And then what do you feel pastorally God might be speaking to our community through this passage? So if you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, first book of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. If you don't have a physical Bible, you can open a new Google tab and just search Matthew chapter 2 Bible or NIV, which is a kind of contemporary translation. I'll give you a few moments to do that. But we'd really like you to have the scripture in front of you and ideally even a notepad beside you so that you can be taking notes, um, highlighting things that you want to go back to and revisit. Really, really good. Um, I don't know, for me at least, it's been a good, uh, it's, it's landed really well this season, Rick, in terms of knowing the power of just sitting in a passage for a while and going through it a few times and taking notes and uh that's something that I've really appreciated through this series is just being able to say maybe less of the academic study and leaning a bit more into going through this passage 10, 15, 20 times and just watching how God's spirit just kind of brings out things in the text that maybe weren't hidden before, but I don't know, maybe hidden is the right word, but just that those impressions of God are really, really powerful. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Just, going through it slowly, different words or different different parts of a verse will jump out at you. And you sometimes even realize, like, I didn't actually notice that before, even though I've read it 10, 20 times. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Even more so with these Christmas passages where, especially as a pastor, when you teach them consistently, you are sort of tempted to think, like, like maybe it'll be new for some people out there, but it's going to be kind of a familiar pass through these texts for me. But I think if your heart's open, God is always showing you something new. And certainly with this passage, it's massively loaded. And I was reminded and taught so many things this week. So I'm going to read the passage. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 18. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." When Herod called the Magi secretly, sorry, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, 
report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Powerful text. Dark text. Uh, Rick, I know that you wanted to sort of set the scene in the context a bit because this passage especially hinges on our ability to sort of have a sense of some of the behind the scenes things that are happening. A lot of information is introduced in this text. So can you kind of just walk us through what we should be aware of before we move right into analyzing the text? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think Matthew 2, it it includes some of the most awe-inspiring elements of the Christmas story, but it also, like you said, some of the most darkest or probably the darkest and most tragic elements. And so to kind of help us appreciate what's all going on behind the scenes, I'd love to kind of um, use the context that I studied and do a bit of a retelling of the story to help us understand some of those, some of those things behind the scenes. So first um, we should know that at this time, the Jewish people in Palestine, they're under foreign rule by the Romans, right? They, they were not free or independent. They paid high tax to Rome. Um, and Caesar put in place regional kings or governors or procurators throughout his empire. And in the region of Palestine, this appointed king was Herod. Um, now, it's a little odd that Herod would be Rome's appointed king for, uh, for the Jews because Herod was neither Roman nor was he Jewish by right. birth. Yeah. Um, Herod's family had actually converted to Judaism. Uh, and, but he was from, from a family line from the Edomians, which is kind of south, southeast, I believe, of, of Israel. And in other words, they were, they were Arabs from the descendants of Esau. So if you're Old Testament geek, Jacob and Esau, he was a descendant of Esau. Um, and Israel didn't really see Herod as their rightful king. And Rome really just saw him as a pawn uh, to control a territory, to maintain order in a territory that was troublesome for Rome. Mm-hmm. And so the question is kind of like, how did Herod get this position? Um, well, his father was a prominent uh, leader and a very influential man with many political connections in Rome. And so it was through these 
personal connections that Herod actually gained favor with Caesar through personal relationships, and he was given power uh, to rule over the Jews in Palestine. So Herod kept Caesar happy by flattering him. He would raise taxes and use that money to build Caesar monuments, to send him gifts, um, and he even used the Roman emblem of an eagle um, to put in the Jewish temple, which was, it was desecrating the temple. It upset a lot of Jewish people. Yeah. And it almost goes without saying that Herod didn't gain the Jewish people's recognition because they liked him. Uh, rather, he gained it through displaying just ruthless power, um, instilling fear in people, raising taxes. And it's pretty much a similar strategy that a lot of dictators have used throughout history, right? Um, so something we should know about Herod is that he had a lust for power and was so insecure that he ended up killing three of his own sons mm-hmm. um, in suspicion that they were conspiring against him. His, his brother-in-law had a mysterious, air quote, drowning accident in what uh, archaeologists have found to be a very shallow pool. It's like, did you drown in your bathtub type mm-hmm. of situation? And on top of that, Herod killed his favorite wife. Uh, He had many wives, and he killed his favorite wife out of jealousy and a suspicion that she was having an affair. Uh, It later turns out that she wasn't, and he regretted that, but a little too late. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a deranged, insecure madman, hungry for power. In fact, Caesar himself had a saying that, that was common in the area, and it said, it's better to be Herod's swine than to be his son because he would still observe <coughs> Jewish kosher laws. So the pigs were safe. They were safer yeah. as a pig. Yeah. yeah, he didn't want bacon, but he would kill his own sons. Um, so now that you have a bit of a picture of the kind of guy that, that Herod was, you can kind of appreciate and imagine his reaction when these wise men show up, when these magi show up from the east. We don't know much at all about these wise men, but many scholars think they were... They were Persian astrologers, mm-hmm. um, not to be confused with astronomy, which is a science. Astrology, it was forbidden in, in the law of Moses uh, because it had to do with pagan spirituality, with, with magic, with telling the future based on reading the stars. Mm. But astrology was very common uh, in surrounding cultures during that day. And uh, big celestial events would often be often be interpreted to mean uh, the death of a king or, or the birth of a new king. And so imagine Herod's reaction when this caravan of, of wealthy, prominent Persian magi show up in Jerusalem from the Far East, and Herod realizes they're not there to um, pay him homage. Rather, they ask, yeah. you know, where's the real king? Yeah. Where, where's the new king? Where's the newborn yeah. king? And Herod likely freaks out. He, he knew Judaism well enough that he knew that their scriptures prophesied about a future Messiah, about yeah. a future king that would come. But that would mean that his position was compromised, <clears throat> that his power would be in question. And so he gathers all the religious teachers in the area and he, he asks them, where is this Messiah actually supposed to be born? And they tell him, Bethlehem. And this is where Herod's sneaky strategy comes in. He, he has no interest in worshiping Jesus at all. He has no desire that the Messiah should come during his lifetime mm. uh, because that would be a threat to his power. And so he needs to get rid of that threat, but he can't give away his scheme. 
And so he tells the Magi to go to Bethlehem, to not leave any stone unturned in searching for this child, and that once they find him, they were to tell Herod ASAP so that he can, again, air quotes, go and worship the baby. The Magi do go find Jesus. They dump a bunch of expensive gifts in Mary and Joseph's lap, and that's awesome because we'll realize that they will probably need um, need that money, need those gifts to survive as they as they flee the country, as mm. they flee as refuge as refugees to Egypt. Um, and next, God reveals Himself to the Magi in a dream, warning them not to go back to this evil King Herod, but to return home a different way. So Herod finds out that he's been duped, and he goes into this tyrannical, <laughs> typical Herod rage, and he orders his men to march down to. It was about a five, six-mile trip down to Bethlehem. And to break into every home and kill all little boys two years and younger. And at this point, the angel visits Joseph, right? And in his dream, he tells him, you need to get up and take Mary and Jesus and, and hit the road. Because Herod's men are coming for your child. So they get out. And then, as you, as you read that last section of scripture, the darkest and most tragic part of the Christmas story happens. Yeah. And I think we need to pause and ask, like, can you really imagine what Mary and Joseph's reaction would have been? What they must have felt and thought when they heard the terrible news along their, along their way that a bunch of parents who they probably knew in Bethlehem just had their child ripped from their bed at night and, and killed. Mm -hmm. And all these kids died because of your child. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, what was Mary and Joseph's reaction? What were the prayers that they were going through? What kind of grief must have the parents in Bethlehem felt to have their children just, just like that taken away from them? Mm -hmm. And so I think the story in verse 18 leaves us with the real question, where is God in our darkest moments? Where is God when tragedy strikes? <sighs> that was a lot. So I'm going to kick it back over to you, Jeff. But what were, what were some of your thoughts coming out of that story? Um, yeah, a few that probably moved to the forefront for me. You know, first of all is trying to not avoid how dark this passage is by, like you said, putting yourself in different characters' positions, right? That Rama is, is quite a, a ways away um, you know, we're talking about a massive geographic area that um, these innocents are uh, killed and the repercussions are felt like a this tsunami of mourning and grief and wailing and desperation. And like you said, to, to just try to imagine as you're fleeing, hearing some of these cries, knowing about them, hearing the rumors, um, and yet there's a there's a grace note in that in in this part of the Christmas story on a few levels. Number one, um, many people are Christmas season averse because the dominant cultural association with Christmas is bright and sparkles and happy and up and anticipation and joy. And there's definitely good reason for that because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And hope and the fulfillment of hope is a huge part of the Christmas story. But this is a part of the Christmas story that it, it would be, I think, very spiritually healthy and good 
to abide in, especially if Christmas is difficult for you. Um, this is an element of the story that displays a lot of cruelty on behalf of Herod, uh, greed. You know, Herod, you, you can do a very basic YouTube search around building projects of Herod. You know, you were talking about him trying to endear himself to the emperor. He actually builds an entire city with a port called Caesarea, names it after Caesar as a way of saying, like, you're in charge, you're the man. Like, and if you look at some of the building projects that Herod had, he's, he's, a, he's a small player in terms of the narrative of Christmas in terms of from our context, but in the first century, he's a major player. He has an, an immense amount of power and wealth. And so when news of this new king comes, there is a very visceral reaction because he understands that he has a lot to lose. He has spent decades of his life accruing power and privilege and sealing off any threat to himself. And now he gets news of maybe the biggest threat. And he just goes scorched earth. And for me, there's a lot of layers to that story. But I think one of the things that God's word here is trying to show us is that the world has evil elements. The world is filled with evil and brokenness. And if you find yourself in a place of darkness and desperation and wailing and mourning, like Christmas is for you, right? It's not for the people who are like, oh, I'm so uppity and excited and things are kind of, there's generally speaking upward trajectory in my life, upward mobility, uh, socially, economically. What we're seeing here is that God has come to rescue not just people's souls, but to invert the social order. We're told that um, in the prophecy of where this child's going to be born, it says Bethlehem, and it says a ruler's going to come from Bethlehem who will shepherd my people Israel. And that's, that's a very intentional dig that the text gives in terms of Herod. Herod is supposed to be the king. He's an imposter king in a sense. He is not shepherding the people. A shepherd lays down his life for sheep. The shepherd has the sheep in mind and the flourishing of the flock. Herod completely inverts that, right? And yet this king has come to rule in a different way. He is going to show a path of how to gain and then use power, not in a way that exploits people. And literally, not only does he not kill his enemies, or threats to him. Ultimately, at the cross, he's going to surrender his own life for his enemies. So you have all these um, foreshadows and Old Testament echoes which are building into the significance of what we're seeing here in the text. And, you know, for me, there's, there's two camps that have power. You have the Magi, which do have a lot of wealth. It is probably a, a caravan. It's not just three kings. Uh, this would have been quite a caravan they would have made a a pretty significant entrance they have power herod has power but they're two totally different reactions herod's self-consumed and saying how do i keep this it's mine it's kind of like bilbo baggins with the ring right where he's like it's mine why shouldn't i keep it right and the magi are like even though they, they aren't steeped in the jewish scriptures they understand there's a new king and it's a game changer. And they come and it says that they're overjoyed, that they bow down and worship him, and that they bring him gifts. 
So you have this, they're very comfortable with surrendering all, all kinds of material, relational, religious, uh, self-identifying um, uh, idols or pillars of who they, or what they believe themselves entitled to, and saying, no, they, they, they recognize, even as pagans, the uniqueness of this child. And when Jesus comes and presents himself as king or as Lord in our lives, I think you sort of, generally speaking, we have one of those two reactions. People have one of those reactions. They're either excited and they want to learn more and they want to worship Jesus and give him gifts, the ultimate one being the throne of their heart. Or you have the reaction like a Herod that says, wait a sec, Jesus is a threat to life as I have very carefully constructed it. And so all these power dynamics and how Jesus is inverting the power structure and how he's calling abuses of power and how he will through his life uh, show a different path. I mean, there's just sort of levels of this text that are amazing. What, what for you was something that stood out? Yeah, I, I probably won't repeat too much of that. That was literally like some of the biggest things that mm. jumped out at me too is just the contrast between how the Magi respond to Jesus um, versus how Herod responds. Uh, but maybe one thing I can I can emphasize a little bit is is there's that third group of people is is the Jewish people themselves. Hmm. Um, so I'll emphasize a couple of things about the Magi that stood out to me um, because I think for many Christians and even as I did some research, you know I, I like the language of wise men. It doesn't uh, imply too much, but when I actually did research on like who were the Magi. Um, it doesn't sit too well for a lot of Christians because the truth is, like you said, they're most likely pagan into astrology and some of these mm -hmm. other forms of spirituality, into magic and divination. Um, all of these things that are very counter-Christian and counter-Jewish as yep. well. And yet I think Matthew highlights the fact that even the people who seem furthest from God, these pagan astrologers, they can respond to God in amazing ways if simply given the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so God chose to actually reveal himself to them partially through their own misguided um, spirituality, through, through natural revelation. We, see, we say, talk about it. Sometimes natural revelation is like a partial revelation mm. of God. And their star led them in a general sense to Palestine, right? And they assumed they would find the king in the capital, in the biggest palace they could find, which yep. was Herod's palace. Yeah, exactly. And he says, where is the newborn king? Expecting him to be in the like, palace. Like right there, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so partially revealed through, through natural revelation, but then they actually needed God's word through the religious teachers, God's scripture as special revelation to say, actually, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Go search there. Yeah, you got a half right. There is a new king. Yeah. But, yeah, we got to go into God's word to allow it to define who it is and where he is. Yeah. That's and so cool. they respond to their partial and the special revelation, finding somebody in a place that they were not expecting. Yeah. And yet they, they respond in worship and in giving the best of their gifts. And I just mm. love how the text emphasizes joy. They're like their response was yeah. they were filled with joy. And God sends them back home. And we don't often think about that, but I was thinking these guys must be the first missionaries out east. Like they will have brought that joy with them and be yep. outposts of the joy they've experienced. Yeah. 
Well, and, and I wrote an article about this years ago, but just that line that they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They returned to their country by another route. And that's literal, another geographic route, so that they don't get found out and Herod doesn't pounce on them and ha- or have his cronies do that. But it's also that same thing. It's like now that they've encountered this new king, the world's true king, how are they going to go back to their regular life? I mean, the text leaves us hanging. We don't know. But what we see play out in the rest of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the different gospel accounts is that when people have a serious and significant encounter with Jesus, when they see Jesus for who he really is, they can't go back to their life as normal. It's not like, wow, that's really interesting, and now I just keep moving forward. It sort of, that revelation, that Christmas revelation sort of pushes you to say, are you going to enter into joy and worship and give gifts and then go back into your life in a different way, serving a different king? Or are you going to go back into your life and try to hold this at bay, try and keep up the house of cards that you've built in terms of your identity built around these things like Herod, But if you do that, I think what you see um, playing out in the people who do that in Scripture is they're always kind of Christ-haunted. You you never, you you can never kind of get, you know, there's a a famous preacher who talked about, you know, once you encounter Jesus, you can't kind of get him off your hand. You, you, You sort of, you can't black it out. He leaves an impression that is powerful and forces you to go back into your life and it might be slow at first, but you begin to kind of look around your life and say, I need to start doing things differently now that I've encountered Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that actually reminds me, uh, I think it was Timothy Keller. You guys can Google it. I might be wrong, but I think it was Timothy Keller actually who has a quote that always stood out to me and it said, once you've encountered the real Jesus, it's impossible to be indifferent. Right. You will either bow down and worship or you will walk away offended. Yeah. But it's impossible right. to just be like, meh. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet that is, that's almost the sense that I get from how God's people, how the Jewish people respond, right? Um, it says that all of Jerusalem was unsettled when the Magi arrived. But it also says that the religious teachers even confirmed that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So they were the people who had the special revelation mm-hmm. of God. And yet they didn't follow the Magi to go yeah. worship, to go look for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. They stayed there either frozen in fear because of Herod. Yeah. Or, or they hadn't really experienced the God of their scriptures and were kind of like, I don't want my life to be unsettled again. Mm. That's a great insight, right? Like pastorally to reflect on that, that um, sometimes our reaction isn't just outright rejection or try to kill the threat of Jesus in our lives like Herod does, but it is this sense of like, "Ah, I've worked really hard. I've made a lot of sacrifices. I'm comfortable here. I know Jesus is the king, but I also am suspicious that if I go, I'm going to have to reorient my worship around him. I'm, I'm going to owe him gifts. I'm going to now have to yield and surrender to him. I know that's the right thing, but I still kind of don't want to do it because I don't like being unsettled and I like the little kingdom. And there's all these, you know, you know, for, for God's kingdom to come in our life, our little kingdoms have to go. These, these little pictures of like, this is 
this is the good life, and I'm so close. Or maybe I've achieved it, and Herod really achieved a big, a big dream, and these religious leaders have a smaller one, but it, it, there's this clash of kingdoms happening. And it's really interesting, again, that it's these pagan astrologers who say, oh, actually, we see what's going on, and we'll worship this child. I mean, it, it's just so fascinating. Um, yeah, we, we were joking. You could go, you could spend weeks on this text. I mean, it's, it's incredibly rich, but maybe pastorally for yourself or personally for yourself, um, what is the, what, what's the dominant impression that this text leaves you with this Christmas? Yeah, I think just kind of looking at the tragedies of the story, that it's not always a happy-go-lucky life. Um, I was challenged to rethink how, what is my image of who God is, right? Um, there's this myth, uh, callers call it the, the myth of religious fulfillment that I think a lot of us, whether we realize it or not, we actually kind of fall prey to. And that's this, this idea that if I place my faith in Jesus, if I receive his forgiveness, um, then he's going to somehow make all my dreams and all my hopes come true and life is going to be easier. Mm. And I wouldn't, I would never come right out and say that. I was like, no, I don't believe that. And I don't think any Christians that I know personally would say, I don't believe that. And yet when we do face tragedies in life, when, when, when our road is tough, when things don't go according to our hopes and plans, very typically like a Christian, a Christian might respond with either I'm ticked off at God because I thought this was going to go my way mm-hmm. or, or it could be embittered to God and say, I don't think you care. Or maybe even worse, I don't think God exists at all because my life has been shattered right. and these real bad things have happened. And so Matthew 2 challenges us to have a different view of God, not to, not to view him as a vending machine God that if, if we give him something, He's going to give us everything that we desire for our, like our yeah. kingdoms, right? Yeah. Um, so that was just a real challenge for me to, to recalibrate who is this God? Because he's not a God whose promises to fulfill all my greatest desires and hopes and dreams in this life. Uh, at least not the ones that I want to build my kingdom around. Mm-hmm. And yet he is a God that doesn't abandon he doesn't, uh, his, his plan didn't fail, even though it probably seemed that way to Mary and Joseph when they hear the bad news of, of all these kids being died, right. or yep. being killed, sorry. And, and yet we see, you know, through the gospel story, you know, God actually worked in and through those tragedies to bring about the greatest hope of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was the personal challenge, is to really just ask the question, what what view of God do I have? And how does this story challenge me to think of God differently? Mm-hmm. That's excellent. I think for me, the theme that impacted me personally, but also pastorally, is sort of the question, am I leading with Jesus's agenda and character as a shepherd, as a pastor? Mm-hmm. And you, you, know, you see Herod as he's got the title, he has all the worldly resources to bring to bear, and he could have done a lot of good but he in a sense turns his back on the people of Israel, turns his back on God. And, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which I think this text challenges me continually to say, am I shepherding uh, this church, the people under my spiritual authority and care, or do I see them as a means to build 
my kingdom, right? Am I operating as a shepherd or as like a tyrant king? And I think that's important for everybody in Christian leadership and certainly pastors to be cycling through that question consistently. Because while we might say, yeah, I'm not resistant and antagonistic towards Jesus in the way that Herod was, there might be uh, places in our lives that aren't fully surrendered where we're still trying to say, for sure, your kingdom come over here, but I, I want my pound of flesh here. Like, this is what I want. And Ezekiel 34 in the Old Testament talks about doom to the shepherds of Israel who tend to themselves, right? They have this position. They are empowered and anointed to be a conduit of God's grace to people, but they see it as, oh, God's blessed me so that I become blessed. It's about me. And they invert the structure of blessing. And instead of seeing theirs as a position that comes around and underneath the flock and says, how do I gently and courageously nudge you towards the good shepherd? You say, hey, hey, flock, this is about me. How are you helping me? How are you enriching my life financially, materially, spiritually? And so I think that's a really uh, critical question for everybody in pastoral leadership. And, you know, maybe I'll share my reflection on the church one, then you can share it to the church. Dovetailed a lot with yours. That, you know, in Isaiah it talks about those who are walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned, referring to Jesus. And if you're in a place of deep darkness, whether as a Christian or as a non-believer, you need to hear that Christmas is for you. And this passage, in a very unsettling but pointed way, says... Sometimes when things look the darkest to us from our frame of reference, God is at work most powerfully. And that's not just true in the Christmas story. That's true in a lot of stories in Scripture. Ultimately, the cross, where everything from a human point of view looks like Jesus' plan, God's plan, has uh, just unraveled into catastrophe. But I think it's important that we keep reading and, and, and sit in this passage long enough to remember The darkness is a place where light breaks through and God is at work in the darkness. Some of God's most restorative, healing, transformative, powerful work is done in the dark. And so I don't want you to hear this in a trite way, but trust and obey. Do the next right thing. Um, Lean into God's grace. Ask for grace. Mourn. Lament. Pour out your heart to God whether as a believer or unbeliever, and trust that in that place of disruption and darkness, God is going to bring you through and is going to do something that now you can't see, but you will look back on and say, wow, God is actually good. God is amazing. What about for you, a word for our church or the community? Yeah, I think I think similar with you. It, 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 it dovetailed a little bit. It was similar in... Um, I think this Christmas story and the whole gospel, it shows us that God, God actually enters with us in our pain. And Jesus did that from birth to death. Yeah. He had a price on his head. He had, he, his life was marked by, by tough times, by suffering. And he ultimately took that with him on the cross. But I think the hope of the gospel and the whole Christmas story and Easter story is that not even our worst sins or brokenness, not the not even the worst oppressors, the Herods or the, the Caesars or the Pharaohs of, of the world, 
no politician and no, no health pandemic, which we're currently um, under, right? No natural disaster has the final say through the resurrection of Jesus um, and his promise to return. God has already won. Mm. Like we, we see the whole story that God is good, as you said. And so that's the hope that we can cling to and celebrate, I think, this Christmas. Um, and I think the challenge I had for our community was actually similar to your, to your personal one. And it was just this question of how are you responding to Jesus? We have these yeah. three responses, right? The, the Magi who respond faithfully. Um, the Jewish people who, who actually seem to be responding kind of indifferently, not mm -hmm. wanting to be unsettled. Or Herod wanting to protect his kingdom and his agenda um, at all costs. And so I think it just begs the question for us as the readers, how will you respond to Jesus as, yeah. as ruler, as king, as shepherd? Yeah. And that's something that I think we all need to, need to own and wrestle with and answer. Yeah. All the passages that we looked at, including the one today, keep foregrounding that question, at least implicitly. Mm -hmm. The previous ones that we looked at emphasize more that Jesus comes as a savior. So it's a lot more anticipation and excitement. But this shows the other side, that he also comes as king, or sometimes Christians use the language of Lord or boss or capital L leader, meaning it's not just about what you can get and what Jesus can save you from, but it's about entering into a new relationship where you enter into, yes, joy at that rescue, but you bow down and you start worshiping him instead of yourself or wealth or power or fame or whatever other idol you've centered. And then you begin going back into your everyday life by a new route and saying, I got to do this differently because Jesus is my king. And that's a challenge that cuts across the heart of whether you are a Christian, whether you consider yourself um, a spiritual seeker or someone who is just uh, steadfastly against a theism of any kind. But hear the challenge of this text that God has come to rescue and redeem us and he comes as both Savior to save us from sin's power, but also as Lord to lead us into a new way of life starting now and continuing forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your text. And we just pray and ask that what individuals need from this text, word of challenge, word of comfort, a word of hope, word of joy, consolation, God, that you would provide that for them. We pray that this would be a text that would cut to the heart of everyone, including ourselves, that the truths that we have been talking around and through would sort of percolate and incubate in our own hearts and imagine, imaginations this week. And that as we move forward into our Sunday, we wouldn't just go back into the same routine into the same rhythm reflexively, that after encountering Jesus, you would, by your spirit, God, just nudge us and say, you've got to go a different route this week. Maybe it's a phone call to ask for forgiveness. Maybe it's starting my day in prayer. Maybe it is um, connecting in a way with you that I haven't in a long time. God, would you help us to encounter you in a powerful way that leaves us transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Rick, I totally forgot to prep a benediction.
<laughs> I, I don't have Do one in case you... Uh... <laughs> well, let me just send you off with the generic benediction that may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week as we move towards glorious Christmas morning. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us. Our Christmas Eve uh, uh, kind of carol sing and message is going to be posted on Christmas Eve morning, so on the 24th, and you'll be able to access that at any point during the day as an individual or couple or family. Send it to friends, share it widely. It'll be a short time together that focuses on the birth of Jesus and the implications for our lives. So we'll see you then, and uh, have a great week. God bless.